This evening I would like to speak around the theme of befriending the mind. A couple of weeks ago, um, sitting in the dentist's office, you know, picked up a newspaper, as you do, and I saw this article on the front page, and the headline was, Human Beings Prone to Walk in Circles. And the article went on to describe this research that had been done of taking groups of people, or just ordinary folks, and dropping them in various wilderness locations and asking them to find their way out. And it was invariably discovered in every single group (laughs) that without a map or a compass to guide them, that human beings were indeed prone to walk in circles and they would end up in the very same spot that they'd started out from. Now, I read this and I found myself really not feeling particularly surprised. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we do find in ourselves... And it says, human beings, we are prone to walk very familiar pathways. Not only in our lives, but in our own emotional and psychological lives. And we do often, in truth, walk in circles. How many times, you know, for example, even over this last few days, have you found yourself walking or traveling on very familiar pathways of anxiety or judgment or irritability or blame or fear or aversion or doubt? You know, how many times have you found yourself uh, involved or entangled in patterns of thinking and reacting and interpreting in the patterns that we've engaged in a thousand, ten thousand hundred thousand, a million times before. And very often, you know, when we come out the end of these pathways, we feel a little sorrowful, you know, because there's that sense of, oh, here I am again, you know, or there I did it again. But you notice how rarely we're surprised It's not like, my goodness me, I was anxious again. Isn't that amazing? You know, or it's not that sense of, oh my, I was irritated. You know, like that's so So, you know, we rarely feel that, that sense of surprise. In truth, we'd probably be more surprised if we uh, found ourselves responding to life in new and fresh ways. Now, samsara in the Buddhist teaching, it's a Pali word. It's this feeling, it was sometimes describing the sort of wheel of life, but it's this feeling or sense of being caught, imprisoned, entangled in circles of discontent, estrangement, and confusion. And samsara, actually in the Tibetan language, when it's translated literally from Tibetan, does actually translate as walking in circles. 
no surprise. Now, what we are endeavoring to do in, in the practice, what we're endeavoring to do in this path, is actually to learn how to use a map and a compass. It's essentially what we're endeavoring to do, to learn to use a map and a compass that enables us to travel new pathways, to disentangle our minds and our hearts from these very familiar habits and patterns and confusion that keep us, you know, engaged in those circular motions. We're involved in using the map and the compass to find our way actually out of the wilderness, to explore what it means to, to liberate the mind and heart from confusion and distress, and really to cultivate a mind, to cultivate a heart that is a friend, that is an ally, that is even, if you can entertain the possibility, a mind that is a refuge. So this path certainly has never had any interest in annihilating, suppressing, or subduing the mind. Although I'm sure that could seem very tempting in the moments of direst confusion or distress or obsession. This path has always had as its primary interest in transforming the mind, transforming the heart. Again, in the Tibetan tradition, there's a saying that says, this mind, this heart, does the bidding of the skillful and the unskillful, the wholesome and the unwholesome, that used unwisely, this mind, this heart, entangles us in samsara, the circles. That used wisely, this mind, this heart, is a raft to freedom. I think as the retreat goes on, you know, as we spend a little bit more time curious in and being mindful of the mind, one of the questions, that, one of the primary questions I think it is appropriate to ask of ourselves is, what does a wise, a compassionate, a skillful mind actually look like? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How would, we, how would we sense that? Now, it's not about, you know, when we ask a question like that, it, it's not about having an immediate answer, but it is an important question to explore at the heart of this path. The other thing I think is very important to acknowledge is that the compassionate, the calm, the wise mind, the mind that is truly a friend and an ally and a refuge, this is not a lucky accident. You know, it's not a mind that's reserved for a select few who happen to be born at the, you know, a good karmic moment. You know, and everybody else is just kind of cursed with this other kind of mind. I mean, I know for myself, you know, having been sitting on a cushion like this now for 39 years, I know this is a training you know, and I, I can say that so clearly. This is a training. And it's not kind of like, you know, a little, you know, a little hobby or, you know, something on the side. Um, you know, this is a training for our lives. But the benefits, 
the benefits is truly to discover a mind that is an ally. The calm mind that is a refuge does not arrive at some or through some magical experience or moment, but the mind that is truly a refuge, a heart that's truly a refuge and ally, is actually born of understanding and befriending the unskillful, confused, and repetitive mind. That is our classroom. And I think we need to be very, very clear about that, that the mind that's a refuge is not something separate from befriending the mind that feels not a friend, the mind that feels at times overwhelming. Aversion for our mind, and many people over this week have actually spoken about having aversion for their mind. Aversion for our mind does nothing but deepen the habit of aversion. And I think the first significant step of cultivating a mind and a heart that is a friend of refuge is to replace the habit of aversion and resistance with curiosity and interest and investigation. It's not about blaming the mind, but understanding it. Now, we begin, you know, and we have begun to be mindful of the mind, and probably you've recognized this is really no easy thing to do, is it? To be mindful of your mind. It, it can feel so hard. If we take just a few moments even just to be aware of what our mind is like, I think that, you know, the analogy that's often used or the metaphor that's often used in, in Buddhist teaching is this kind that it, the, the mind <laughs> that is not a friend. It's like a mind, uh, it's like a pool of water that is being whipped up by violent storms, you know, that's being agitated by violent storms of thought, of emotion, of the tasks we think about, the things we're preoccupied with, the anxieties, the worries. We, we are mindful of our mind. And, and if you notice how hard it is to be attentive for more than, you know, like one breath at a time, we see how the mind flits from thought to thought, from past to future, from one obsession to another. You know, I know often we have sequential obsessions in um, fantasies, images, and that you've probably noticed how little of this is actually intentional. How little, isn't that amazing? How little of it is actually intentional. And we can actually, in times, do really feel quite helpless in the face of the storms. You know, I don't think anybody, you know, has anybody come into this retreat and decided to sit and have a really good, juicy, obsessive sitting? <laughs> has anybody come into the retreat, into the hall, and decided that they were going to have 45 minutes of pure, unadulterated bliss and calm? and have the mind actually be responsive. I mean, you might have had the thought, but to have the mind be responsive. The truth is that we often feel ambushed. 
We often feel ambushed by the mind. Have you noticed that? Even when you get like a few minutes of calm, you know, in comes the thought, oh, calm, you know, and immediately there's this agitation, you know, how do I keep hold of this? You know, how do I keep it going? You know, how do I get more of it? We often do feel ambushed. And, and it's amazing how the habitual mind, it, what it does is it sabotages intentionality. It sabotages intentionality because you can see you have the intention to be awake, to be present, to be mindful. Along comes a storm and that intentionality just feels to be actually quite fragile and often quite sabotaged. It is also a reality that no matter how helpless we feel, we are not. We are not helpless in the face of our minds. If we learn to use the compass, to follow the map, we do actually find the ways to calm the storm. And that this image that is often, you know, and I used this, this in a talk the other night, the image, the metaphor, the image that's used so often right through the discourses to describe this mind of clarity, of kindness, of insight, is the image of the clear forest pool that receives and reflects everything that comes but stay where the waters stay unagitated where the waters stay steady balanced and clear so as we begin in the practice to be more mindful of the mind i think it's a really good question to ask ourselves what is the mind what is the mind Because we use this kind of phrasing so often of my mind. And we usually, when we use that phrasing, it's usually like in headlines, you know, my capitals, you know, my mind. And it's often with a sense of despair, you know. (laughs) My mind is so agitated, so depressed, so confused. And the subtext in this use of language is often, I am my mind. I am my mind. I am so agitated, depressed, confused. We talk about the mind and often think about the mind as if it is this static, unchanging, eternal edifice thing structure, often to be sort of feared or shunned or or despised. Now, okay, so just a few moments of being mindful of the mind should really encourage us to question this view of the mind as this thing, this object, this, this kind of structure. And it's certainly, well, two things. One thing we see so clearly, the mind most definitely is not static. And I would like to propose the most mind is most definitely not who I am. What we see instead is that the mind, you know, and, and this is no new, the- this is not a new theory, it's not a new theory in Buddhist teaching, it's not a new theory in, in psychological research, that the mind is a process, okay? We get that. The mind is a process. And if you look at Pali, again, the language of the discourses, 
that Pali is not a language of things and nouns. It is a language of verbs. It is a language of process. It is essentially a language of life. So I'd like to make this sort of little shift inwardly. Instead of referring to the mind, it would be more accurate to speak of what we're experiencing as minding. Okay? We're minding. They're minding. Minding is happening. Minding is happening. It's not the mind. Minding is happening. Now, think about what kind, what that means when you just shift the language inwardly and shift the perspective. Instead of the mind, my mind that I have to do something about, minding is happening. Now, if we really look, this is actually more true in our own experience, but the wonderful thing about it is it allows a much greater sense of possibility. When we speak of the mind as this structure, static, you know, eternal sculpture or edifice, well, it looks pretty impenetrable. But when we think about minding in a state, in a process, a state of change, arising and passing, then actually that sense of possibility, I feel, is much more present. So how do we experience this minding? So let's change the whole language. Obsessing is happening. Fantasizing is happening. Imagining is happening. Reacting is happening. So too can calming be happening, reflecting, clearing, investigating, and liberating be happening. So to understand the mind as process, I believe, is actually very, very good news. Because what we do see, and this is certainly true, that everything in the mind, in minding, is in a state of change. I mean, this is obvious. I mean, you haven't had the same mind all day, have you? I mean, nobody's had the same mind all day. The mind is in a process that's been changing all day. We've been, you know, examining, sensing many different flavors of minding today. There is no thought, no, no habit, no belief system that is eternal because the mind is not eternal and unchanging. So if, the mi- if minding is subject to change, so too is everything in minding subject to change. All our habits, all our patterns, all the belief systems. So we can actually see this very experientially. We see the wind of change move through what we call mind. Happy thinking turning to sad thinking. Angry thinking turning to more kindly thinking. Anxiety, anxious thinking that seems so powerful in one moment is a distant memory by lunch. The belief systems that feel so impenetrable at times are changed in the light of new experience. We experience the winds of all of the different emotions in a single day. Jealousy, aversion, happiness, appreciation, sadness, compassion, 
all happening. Now, what I'd like to suggest is the mind is not something separate from all of this. This is the mind. It's not like my mind is somewhere back here, you know, having this experience. This is the mind. This is the mind. The mind is not something separate. Now, sometimes, of course, these winds that move through the mind last a short time. Sometimes they last a long time. But eventually they're going to change into something else. We find ourselves in one moment delighted by the sound of the birds, or the sun in the trees. Moments later, we are like totally irritated by the scrape of a chair or the sound of a car. It happens so quickly. So what do we see in this process, this process of minding? Well, I think we see that within that process, there is the, there can be immense pain, certainly in anxiety and obsession and self-judgment and blame and rage. But also in this process of minding, there can be great, really great loveliness great delight, great sensitivity, great openness, great generosity. So I think what we begin to appreciate, and certainly this is in this teaching itself, is that the mind lives in a state of potentiality. The mind lives in a state, or minding lives in a state of potentiality. That minding is shaped, sculpted, formed, you know, the actual flavor of mind in the moment, is shaped, sculpted, and formed by many, many different factors. Certainly one of the factors that is shaping the minding is not just perception, but the the tendencies that get associated with perception. We've talked about this some. You know, you, you, you wake up, you hear a sound in the night, and you can immediately feel the sort of flood of childhood terrors run through the mind until the mind minding is terrified minding. You can see a rabbit, you know, hopping across the lawn and, you know, memories of idyllic summer days arrive and you can feel the mind being shaped by that delight, by that appreciation. The minding is shaped by the emotions, the thoughts, the images that are rising in the moment, stimulated in the moment. And, of course, the minding can be shaped by tendencies, by views, by habits. Now, it is true that without awareness, we do feel very, very helpless and impotent and lost in this kind of flow of experience, this flow of information, walking in familiar circles often and ending up in places far from where we wish to be. And it can feel, I know it can feel to be impossible. It feels like a life sentence often, you know, kind of hopeless. This is who I am. This is who I will always be. But usually when I say this is who I am, it means I'm really not interested in changing. (laughs) Now, with the introduction and cultivation of mindfulness, there does arise a sense of possibility to walk new pathways, more compassion, more kindness, wiser pathways. And I think the very first gift of mindfulness is the shift that can be made and the shift that is made 
from a life and minding governed by patterning, governed by conditioning, governed by reactions and impulses to a life and minding that is really guided by intentionality, by responsiveness, and by understanding. And that is just shift from the mind that feels like a burden to a mind that feels like a friend. You know, 2,500 years ago, people sat and they lived with the same mind that we sit and live with. And for sure, the Buddha recognized the size of the cloth. You know, the immense distress, the immense confusion and conflict that can be born within the mind. And the Buddha spoke about the mind as being the forerunner of all things, our our words, our acts, our choices, happiness and unhappiness, the mind being the forerunner of our felt sense of ease and freedom, and the mind also being the forerunner of our felt sense of imprisonment and despair. And the Buddha, too, often spoke about the intractability and the stubbornness of many of our psychological and emotional habits. And he also actually spoke, too, about how it is within this very mind and heart that we cultivate, nourish, and foster an awakened heart. I'd like to read you a poem some of you will be familiar with by Galway The title of the poem is Relearning Loveliness. And it says, The bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness to put a hand on the brow of the flower and, and retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. I think this poem really captures in many ways the heart of this path very beautifully and the heart of, of mindfulness very beautifully. Because in very real ways in this practice and in this path, we are reteaching our minds and our hearts their loveliness. We're reteaching that. And it is a journey, a practice, a cultivation. Now, it's interesting that when when the Buddha spoke about when he started to contemplate his own mind, as we do, He began by this very simple exploration and identification in the mind, in the winds of thought and emotions. He began this very simple exploration. Which amongst the thoughts and emotions he was experiencing, which amongst them were skillful, healing, and liberating, and which amongst the thoughts and feelings and emotions, which amongst them would, were actually distressing, unhelpful, um, leading to further suffering and confusion for himself and for others. 
He looked at the thoughts and the emotions. He said, which amongst these leads to a greater sense of freedom and compassion and which lead away from that to further alienation and conflict? Now, I think it is very important to, to acknowledge how much discernment, wise discernment, is part, one of the factors of mindfulness. And this kind of looks like the kindergarten of wisdom, doesn't it? looks like the kindergarten of wisdom. What leads to suffering? What leads to the end of suffering? In the thoughts, in the emotions, in the mental states, to really be able to bring that simple discernment between the skillful and the unskillful. Now, this is a, a different language from good, bad, right, wrong. It's not that language. It's about where does it lead? What does it bring? Now, on one level, this kind of discernment, this sort of kindergarten of wisdom, can I know it can sound incredibly simplistic, and yet in a very real way, this discernment is the starting point for understanding and for the liberated heart. And it's in this discernment that we learn to engage mindfulness with the wise effort that Rob was speaking about last night. It's very important to understand that, you know, that mindfulness is not this a state of passivity, that the discernment, that, you know, that mindfulness allows for discernment, and discernment allows for the engagement of mindfulness with wise effort and wise action. Basically, what do we foster and what do we let go of? What do we cultivate and what do we let fall away? We don't know that unless we first discern what it is that leads to suffering for ourselves and others, what is it that leads to the end of suffering. This is part of the map that stops us walking in circles. It's part of the map that stops us walking in circles. Now, if you look at the mind, your, the mind today, and I use the language your mind, but please don't take it personally. But if you look at the mind today, your mind, because you weren't looking at somebody else's mind, um, look at even just the last sitting. It's not hard for us to see, really, is it, that you know thoughts of of judgment, aversion, restlessness, inattention, fantasy, obsession. What is their outcome? Please, is their outcome ever skillful and useful? You know, or do they ever contribute to calmness, well-being, happiness, and compassion? Maybe somebody has a very different mind than I've ever experienced, but that's not my experience. That there is a kind of whole series of, in reality, these thoughts with the emotions that are embedded in them do little but distress the mind. And they very do very little but endless repetitive storytelling. Repetitive storytelling. It is one of the characteristics of the unskillful is that it tends to generate endless storytelling. It's one of our clues. Perhaps we've also seen other thoughts and emotions arise today. Kindness, generosity, acceptance, 
patients and we immediately see the difference in the impact that they have upon our minds, our lives, our sense of relatedness. You also notice that in the skillful and the wholesome, there's actually much less storytelling. There's a greater sense of calmness, simplicity, a greater sense of balance. Now, we need to be very careful here because this is not about placing another demand or another judgment upon ourselves, you know, that says, well, I should only have certain kinds of thoughts, you know, and these other thoughts are really not okay, and a good meditator and this person, you know, wouldn't have these other shameful thoughts. It is not, discernment is not judgment. It is being aware of what is and the outcome of what is. It is learning to befriend and to read the landscape of our own minds, to teach ourselves what leads to distress and confusion and what leads to the end of distress and confusion. And in truth, in doing that, we are reteaching the mind its loveliness. Now, in the path of befriending the mind, the Buddha also put out a couple of goalposts, very big ones, actually. He said, within the mind, he said, one who really understands the mind thinks the thoughts they wish to think and doesn't think the thoughts they don't wish to think. Pretty high bar, isn't it? It's really a pretty high bar. Now, this is not about like likes and, you know, I don't like that thought, I'm not going to think it, you know, or, you know, I like that thought, I'm going to think it. It's actually having a mind that is really in cooperation with intentionality. A, 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 psycholo- an emotion, a, mental, a minding, a minding process that is cooper- in cooperation with intentionality and it's in cooperation with insight and the discernment of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. Another way of putting this is, is you know, there's this story of a, a, a Native American elder out walking by the river with his grandson and reflecting on what kind of wisdom he would like to pass on to his grandson. And as they're walking along, the, the, the chief, he says to his grandson, he says, you know, sometimes it feels as if I have two wolves living within me. And one of those wolves hungers for war and, and victory and aggression. And the other wolf within me hungers for peace and for kindness. And the grandson and they are at war with each other and the grandson says but but grandfather which of the wolves is going to win and he says well it depends on which one I feed depends on which one I feed now I think that the kind of moral of this story that's very important is that thoughts and emotions do not have an independent self-existence Mental states, patterns, belief systems do not have an independent self-existence. They do not have a life of their own. Their existence and their continuity relies upon what is how they are fed and nourished. 
Now, you know, you think about this for a moment. Suppose a difficult thought arises. You know, you have a, a memory of an argument with someone or a thought of self-judgment. Now, the work of mindfulness is just to know that thought, just to know that emotion, to surround it with wise attention, with kindness, with compassion. But if the attention is unwise, we find ourselves feeding that thought and the mental state that comes with it, with more thoughts, with more associations. You know, the person we had an argument with, the whole story starts to be retold once more why that person is so terrible, everything that's wrong with them, you know, until we actually, you know, we have such a long portfolio of their imperfections that, you know, we're quite sure the whole world agrees this person's the worst person ever born. You know, we think about, we have a thought arise about ourselves. You know, I'm really not doing so well. You know, I'm, everybody else looks like a Buddha. (laughs) I'm just kind of falling behind here, sort of, you know, second class meditator or something. You know, and you can see all the history, you know, oh, and I remember when I failed in Girl Scouts, you know, and, you know, the moments of rejection in the playground and all oh, that test, life, you know. And it just goes on and on, doesn't it? But we're feeding. We're feeding a thought, a mental state, with more thoughts, more mental states. So it grows. It's that simple, you know. It's suppose you have, we're having a dinner party and an uninvited guest turns up, you know. You could very kindly offer them a glass of water and say goodbye. Or you could offer them a five-course meal. Now, you know what would happen if you offered the uninvited guest the gourmet dinner. But guess what? They're going to come often. (laughs) They're going to come often. They're going to keep showing up time after time after time. Because this this is where I get fed. This is where I get fed. This is, uh, this is what is happening in the mind. Now, we know the exhaustion of endless storytelling. You know, and it really is exhausting. You know, if you think about it, you know, people, you know, I see people on retreat, you know, oh, so tired, you know, getting through that last sitting. You know, who goes to bed at 9 o'clock at home? I mean, is anybody... <laughs> Kids go to bed at 9 o'clock, you know. Grown-ups don't go to bed at 9 o'clock. And you hear your routine falling into bed, exhausted at 9.15, as if you've been running a marathon all day. We're just sitting around for crying out loud. <laughs> so we, we just sit around, you know. And occasionally we get out, we have a little toddle, you know. We come back, sit around some more, you know. I mean, and the most exhausting thing we do in a day is make a cup of tea. I mean, with a, it's like, and you can feel the exhaustion. What is, where, why are we so tired? Ever think how exhausting it is, the kind of walking in circles and the storytelling? It's not what we're doing physically. It's not just sitting around. It's what is happening in our minds. More importantly, when we walk in circles, we reinforce the habits that do not serve us well. Now, this, these habits of walking in circles, obsessing, ruminating, proliferating, in this teaching, that habit is called papancha. 
the Pali word Papancha. And really, if there is one word you're ever going to learn in Pali, this should be it. Papancha. You know, every time you find just the circle going, just know it's Papancha. Papancha is the proliferation and generation of thoughts and reactions aligned with views that color and distort our ways, uh, distort our seeing of things the way they actually are. That's such a mouthful. Papancha is really much easier. But it's walking in circles. It's walking in circles. It describes the storm of thoughts and emotions born of association and memories that surround perception, that keep us walking in circles. And it is what we are learning to understand and calm, this tendency, this habit to proliferate, to obsess, to ruminate, ruminate, because this is probably the primary psychological and emotional habit that causes so much pain. That makes the mind feel like an enemy, that it just won't stop, that obstructs our capacity to see anything anew in this life. You know, Suzuki Roshi, a great Zen teacher, he once said, In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, in the expert's mind, there are few. And basically what the storytelling is doing is making us an expert or believing we're an expert on everything. You know, we think through the storytelling, I know myself, that's how I am, because really, you know, I'm an expert on it. I know you. This is who you are, you know, because this is it. I know this situation. This is how life is. You know, it's like an expert. So we, it, it's kind of like the constant kind of storytelling going in circles really doesn't allow us to see anyone, anything, or ourselves actually anew. And when we cannot see the moment ourselves or another person anew, we have no option but to walk in the familiar circles of reactivity rooted in the past. Now, a lot of the shift of mindfulness is to move from this reactivity, which is born in these kind of historical, historical associations, memories, and calories, really to a quality of responsiveness. And responsiveness is only ever related to being able to hold something freshly, uncolored, uncolored, undistorted by history, being able to hold you freshly when I meet you. Not my whole long historical story of who you are and who you always will be. To be able to meet myself freshly, responsiveness, this moment, this moment. That is kind of walking new pathways rather than familiar circles. If I could give you a little example of this, you know, um, where my house is, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to live in this incredibly quiet, really, for the uh, edge of a town, very secluded part of Totnes. I mean, there's no roads that go past my house, very few cars. So it's actually really a lot of the time really silent. I have these lovely, delightful, incredibly quiet, respectful neighbors. You know, so it's really silent. I really love the silence and the solitude. Well, guess what? Things don't last, do they? So, so my neighbors, very nice people, are, have this, like, major construction progress. 
project begin. So every morning, it's kind of like the invasion of the horde, you know, like the white vans come barreling down, you know, the ra builder's radios get turned on, you know, the saws start, you know, the, the, you know, they turn up, you know, early morning fag and coffee, you know, and then it's shouting, you know, George, throw the bricks in! And, you know, it's just like I sit in my little quiet office, you know, it's now suddenly in the midst of this huge storm. And, you know, and, and it's like, they, you know, nobody's trying to actually, there's nothing personal about all this. There is absolutely nothing personal about this. When they drive over my driveway or decide to hang out for their cigarette break, you know, on my porch or, you know, honestly, there's nothing personal about it. It's just kind of what happens in these situations, you know. And I did find myself, I have to say, I did find myself one morning last week when I wanted to come here and, you know, I couldn't get my car out because all the builders' cars were in my driveway. And I did find this little moment, I have to say, this little twinge, you know, of a <laughs> small twinge of irritation arising. But you know what? It came with the word again. It came with the word again. They're doing that again. And the moment I could hear that word again, it was such a kind of like signal to, to just come back, you know, because it was just like the perception of the cars in my driveway and the word again immediately. You know, you could, I could feel this, you know. And then I looked at it again and I thought, well, it's actually just a car in my driveway. It's actually just a car in my driveway. That is odd. It's actually, you know, it's really not a problem. It's actually just a car. You know, go out very nicely, ask them, would you mind moving your car? Sure, missus. You know, the car zooms off, you know, get out. But notice how difficult that is to be. You know, if you've been in the lunch line, you know, behind the same person who always takes the last potato. You know, and somehow you end up behind them again, you know. And you notice the word again, again is the operative word. They're doing it again. It's, it's, it's like completely disbarring us from any kind of responsiveness, isn't it? We're already reacting before anything even happens. Just with the word again, just with the sight of that person. Just the sight, just the sound is triggering that this historical kind of reactions. Now, the part of the work of mindfulness, and I think this is very important, so important, it is not about severing the link between perception and association. That's, that's not necessarily it at all, you know, because perception, Sonia, is very, very important, necessary part of having a mind, you know. And so are some of the associations, you know. If I come in this room, you know, and I see... You know, uh, you know, I see what's in here. Because I know a cushion is a cushion and a bell is a bell, I know to sit on the cushion and not sit on the bell, right? So this is actually really quite useful. It's just functional perception. Huh? I mean, our life doesn't operate without it. You know, it means that you don't go out and try and drive a picnic table, you know. It, or you don't. You know, it's, it's like this is just functional perception. With association, it's fine. But you know what's not fine? Is the relationship, this automatic linkage between perception and underlying tendencies. 
That's what's not fine. That's what keeps us walking in circles. This linkage that feels so automatic between a sight, a sound, a thought, and an underlying tendency or habit pattern, and, and you know, the three big ones, aversion, ill will, craving, and delusion. But there's other, a lot more underlying habit patterns. You know, anxiety, you know, greed, jealousy, fear. The habit patterns, were, you know, that, we, that are there. Now, the linkage... The automatic linkage between perception and these underlying habit patterns, this is what keeps us walking in circles, bound to the same circles of reactivity over and over and over again. Now the job, you know, for me, in my understanding, one of the primary jobs, one of the primary liberations of mindfulness and insight is to sever that link. That's what allows us to see anew. That's what allows us to respond rather than react. That's what allows us to walk new pathways rather than walking in circles. And that is, in my understanding, the primary reasons we practice. One of the primary reasons that we practice. Now, much of the circle walking we do, much of the proliferation we do, perhaps not surprisingly, is really about... I mean, we do lots about it in the world, you know, about the world and other people. But a lot of the proliferating obsessing that we do, the circle walk we do, is not surprisingly about ourselves. Because a lot of that circle walking is really about the very deeply ingrained habitual views about who we are. And the proliferation, the tendency to identify with and reinforce the underlying tendencies that are constantly negating, um, negating sense of self. You know, I'm so hopeless, I'm so useless, I'm so unlovable, etc. The I am is one of the biggest proliferations, isn't it? You know, I mean, we write books about me every day. You know, I am this, I am that, I am the other. And you will notice, you will notice that rarely in the books that we write about ourselves, where, rarely do we feature as the kind of hero or the heroine that Rob was talking about last night, you know, this amazingly generous, kind, compassionate, fantastic person with a mind we appreciate and delight and love and a body we embrace with kindness and compassion. Instead, mostly in our books, we feature as the villain. The stories of inadequacy, incapacity, imperfection, hopelessness. Now, what is the effect of the walking in these circles? Do they lead us out of the storms? Do they lead us out of the, a way out of the wilderness? Or do the storytelling proliferation about ourselves simply reinforce the view? Now, thought here, I have to say, is not a problem. You know, as long as we live, as long as there's a mind, there will be thoughts, just as a body has sensations. Again, it is the underlying tendencies of aversion and view and fear and self-view often unseen that keeps us walking in these ruts, deepening these neural ruts. And you know, the more you repeat something, the more it seems to gain this aura of credibility and truthfulness. 
you know, if I tell myself enough times, you know, that I am this, or I must have this, or I must become this, it starts to look pretty true, doesn't it? But just because we've repeated something a thousand times does not make it true. It just shows us what we're more prone to grasp hold of. Now, part of mindfulness, part of mindfulness is to bring these unseen, underlying tendencies, habit patterns, into the light of attention, into the light of awareness. That is what we're doing in the practice. We are bringing this, that which has been more invisible into the light of visibility because we can only explore something that is visible to us. We can only explore something that we have access to. So you can see, you know, you've seen that happening, haven't you, over the days of the retreat, how in the practice there's a certain unlayering that happens. You know, how you often start with just kind of like a distracted, overfull mind. You get a little calmer. You start to get a sense of some of the emotions that are underlying there, that are operating there. You get a little calmer. You start to get a sense of some of the kind of rots, that the, your, the minding that happens quite habitually. It's kind of like the mindfulness is bringing that unseen, that more invisible minding into the light of attention. And that is what allows us to investigate the narratives, the storytelling. You know, I am, you are, this is. It starts to allow us to investigate some of those assumptions, labels, habit patterns that in the past have felt really quite credible. But part of mindfulness, too, is not only investigating the narrative, but it is reframing the narrative, isn't it? Instead of saying, I am, I was, I used to be, I always will be, I always have been, it's actually saying, hey, this is arising in this moment. It's passing. It's actually, if it's not fed, it passes much more quickly. Actually, the moment that there's a kind of feeding or solidifying, I, that becomes I am. So in a way, there's a reframing of the narrative, even, even being able to say, minding is happening. It's reframing the narrative. You know, sadness is happening. It's reframing the narrative. It's not I am, I was, I always will be. Part of mindfulness is understanding the process, understanding how minding moment to moment is being shaped. What is shaping the mind of the moment? And part of mindfulness is to liberate perception from the historical underlying tendencies to allow a fluidity of responsiveness to the moment, to ourselves, to life, to life. And part of mindfulness is also wise attention. You know, to know a thought is a thought. To know a feeling as a feeling. To know a sensation as a sensation without them awakening the underlying habits of aversion and craving and fear. Now, that, that wise, that simple, bare attentiveness is what, actually one of the primary trainings of meditation practice. A sight appears. Think about this. is something very practical. You know, a sight appears, and you can feel sometimes the stirrings begin of, you know, the, the, the windstorms beginning of aversion, of, of fear, of wanting. But what do we do with mindfulness? Instead of kind of diving into those stirrings, we come back to the sight. 
we stay with the sight. We stay with it very, very totally, very fully, very wholeheartedly. You know, a sensation appears, and again, you can feel the stirrings of fear or resistance. What do we do? We don't dive into the stirrings of fear and resistance. We stay with the sensation. So we're learning to sever those links that that can feel so automatic. A thought arises. You can feel the stirrings of, you know, thought of, of judgment or blame, and you can feel the stirrings of the history begin to feed it. But we can see that we don't have to. We can see a thought as a thought. We bring wise attention to it. We surround the sight, the sensation, the thought, with calmness, with spaciousness, with kindness. And you know what? It passes. It passes. We have taken the stickiness out. So the thought passes. We are untangling, unsticking. It allows for responsiveness. And one of the most powerful aspects, I think, of mindfulness is actually to loosen this grip of habit, not just life habits, but the emotional and psychological habits. The more we feed and nurture mindfulness is the degree to which it begins to dissolve habit. You know, and in reality, habit and mindfulness do not coexist. And part of mindfulness is kindness. Kindness, the kindness of changing the lens of how we see, how we attend, how we are present, reteaching our minds their loveliness, reteaching our minds about their potentiality, the potentiality, the potential for spaciousness, for compassion, for acceptance for patience, for simplicity, and for freedom. Recognizing that reteaching our minds their loveliness is a journey and there are a lot of glitches along the way. But again, it is that kindness that allows us to be curious about our minding, about how the mind of the moment is emerging and the relationship that we have with it. And mindfulness then is concerned with the befriending. And it is a befriending that turns the mind into a friend. It's a befriending that turns the mind into our friend, into a friend. It is our practice. We call it, you know, it's sometimes called the cultivation of the mind of loveliness. One teacher called it the cultivation of the mind that is beautiful. You know, the very free, the very awake mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.